Lord, I do thank you for your word. I pray that uh, it would sink deep into our hearts this morning, that whatever you have for us, Lord, we would be willing to receive. We would not have hard, heart, Lord, hard hearts, Lord, as the Israelites did. And Lord, uh, wherever Pastor Bill and Patty are, you'd keep them safe and you'd bring them safely home to us. And Lord, for everyone who lost their homes in the fires this last several weeks, Lord, that you would be with them and comfort them, Lord. And while it is a travesty what happened, we know that everything happens for a purpose. And perhaps that purpose is to drive some of them to you. So, Lord, whatever your purpose, we pray that we would trust it. But, Lord, that you would comfort those who experience loss. In Jesus' name, amen. <coughs> Excuse me. Would you like to hear my son's joke? Okay. Yeah. What did the buffalo say to his boy when he left for school? Bye, son. <laughs> I get them from my children. Okay. Psalm 95. I'm going to read it to you first. It's 11 verses. Uh, I'm going to read a new King James and I believe you can follow an NIV on the screen. <coughs> Psalm 95. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joy- joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is the great God and the great king above all gods. In his hand are the deep places of the earth, and the heights of the hills are also his. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion and as in the day of trial in the wilderness. When your fathers tested me, they proved me, though they saw my work. For 40 years I was grieved with that generation and said, it is a people who go astray in their hearts and they do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. It's a weird way to end a psalm, isn't it? But we're going to explain that. <coughs> Excuse me. So first of all, though, a brief history of the psalms. There are at least six authors of the book of Psalms. The first is David, who is the most prevalent. He's credited with 75 psalms total. Then there is a man named Asaph who is the author or preserver of several psalms, about 12 of them. There are the sons of Korah, who wrote 11 psalms. Solomon, who wrote two that we know of. A man named Ethan the Ezraite, And Moses, who is the author of one. And that leaves about 103 psalms uh, that we know have an author. And 47 of them are a mystery to all but God. Uh, Most scholars call these psalms orphan psalms. Now, what are the book of psalms for? Uh, In Hebrew, it's called the book of praises uh, because every psalm contains some note of praise to God. The title psalms, which we know it by, comes from the Greek word samoi, meaning pious songs or music of stringed instruments. They were written over the course of a thousand years from about 1400 B.C., Uh, from Moses to about 400 BC. The book of Psalms was also originally divided into five separate books. And usually the Bible that you have will list it where it breaks it apart. Now, when were the Psalms used? They were used for liturgical purposes, or what that means is they were used for public worship or public church services. So when we say liturgical, and actually... I originally gave a uh, breakdown of the Greek. Liturgy literally means public service. Now, Psalm 95 that we're going over here is actually quoted three different times in Hebrews, uh, from chapter 3, verse 7, to chapter 4, verse 13. And it's also here that we learn that Psalm 95 is attributed to David. (coughs) So we come to verse 1 and 2. 
It says, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and psalms. So who are we worshiping? You know, obviously, it's the Lord. The Lord here is all in capital letters. So that is Yahweh. And it's important to realize, and I know everybody in here has heard this before, that that is exactly who we're singing to and only to him. Now, I know that a lot of us, including me sometimes, do not sing because we do not like the sound of our voice. I do not like the sound of my voice. I've heard it on tape recorder, and it's the most horrible thing I've ever heard. And there's actually a scientific reason for that. I looked it up. It's when you speak, the way it reverberates inside your head is how you hear it, but everybody else hears it as you hear it on a tape recorder. It's a weird science thing. I can't explain it exactly, but it was, it was interesting. You can actually look, Google it. But we're singing to the Lord. And when you sing, you know, we all want it to sound fantastic. We all, all want it to be harmonious. We all want it to sound perfect together. My wife and our three oldest kids went to see Wicked a few days ago. And it was a great play. It was a musical. And we liked musicals. And it was perfect. Everything, everybody sounded perfect as they were singing. It all worked together. It fit together. Uh, if you ever get a chance to see it, I would see it. But church is not a Broadway musical. We don't all sound harmonious together all the time, but that's really insignificant. We think it sounds horrible, but if we're all singing with our hearts to the Lord, to God, that's better than a Broadway musical. Anyone that could be heard on earth. I don't know what the best one is, but any, whatever you could think of the best musical, God thinks of it above that. If our hearts are given to him in worship, that's what he cares about, and that's the best thing. Now, it also says we're singing to the rock of our salvation. Now, even today, rock means something firm, strong, secure. In Israel, it meant that as well. But for them, you have to realize when they were, maybe even when they were in Israel and they're running from their enemies, <coughs> excuse me, they sought refuge in caves in these rocks. They also would seek refuge in the fortresses that they would make on top of these rocks. So these fortresses were for their defense. They were for um, offense sometimes, but they were there for their protection, for their security. And you can read a lot of times where David himself running from Saul hid in several caves. And in some of the Psalms that we know David sang and wrote, for instance, Psalm 62, he writes, truly he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. So David's hiding in these shelters. He's hiding amongst the rocks, and it says it many times in 1 Samuel. But even though he realizes that these rocks are offering him protection, he realizes that it's the ultimate rock, God our rock, that is really using these things of the world, these rocks these caves to protect him. So God is using the material objects as the avenue with which to provide David protection. Now, with Israel, and even with us today, it's still applicable, the everyday type of deliverance that they're normally speaking about in the Psalms is not necessarily spiritual. They're talking about deliverance from their enemies. They're talking about deliverance from diseases or plagues, um, Anything that would have come up at that time that was in the physical realm that would be considered negative or bad, they were looking for deliverance from those things. And that's not a bad thing because God still delivers us from those things today. I'm sure many of us have experienced times when we were younger where we did something really stupid and we thought, well, I should be dead. Obviously, God delivered me from that. Um, oh, good. I'm not the only one. But God delivers us in those ways. Uh, Hannah herself in the book of Samuel she says, I rejoice in your salvation. There is no rock like our God. Now, what was Hannah delivered from? Barrenness. She could not have children, but she was delivered from it, and she considered God her rock, her security, her fortress because of that. 
Now, for us, we relate the term of rock of my salvation to Christ, and it's absolutely applicable. It's exactly what God intended. But in Old Testament times, that revelation was unclear. Because <coughs> God's revelation, as I've mentioned before, is progressive. He shows things in little snippets in the Old Testament, and as you get closer to New Testament times, it opens up. It's like a flower that blooms. All of a sudden, in the New Testament, when Jesus came, things became very clear. It was like an open rose. So, and we see that in uh, Acts chapter 4. In Peter, Peter says, speaking of Christ, the stone the builders rejected was the chief cornerstone. So in other words, Christ, the prophet, priest, king who came to send salvation to the Jews, the builders, he was rejected by them. But he was that stone. He was that rock. It wasn't clear to them, though. And again, it wasn't just physical salvation, but it was the spiritual salvation of our sins. And you can see all throughout Israel's history that Christ was actually there. There were physical representations throughout their history of the impact spiritually that Christ was to have on their lives. We're told as they wandered through the wilderness that when they were thirsty, there was a rock that they drank from. And it was a physical rock that was there that Moses struck, and then he was struck again twice. The second time he wasn't supposed to, but it was struck. And it says in 1 Corinthians 10 that spiritually that rock was Christ. And Christ was there with them in the wilderness. We also see, and I think it was last week, the week before Pastor Bo brought it up, there was a serpent that they lifted up in the wilderness. It was a bronze serpent they put up on a pole. Um, it was in Josiah's time, actually, that Josiah the king himself destroyed it because it says they were worshiping it and calling it Nehushtan, which means in Hebrew, bronze thing. So they didn't have a name for it. They just called it bronze thing, and they were worshiping it. But that was originally a picture of Christ being lifted up. It says in John 3 that we were to look upon Christ, and as we look upon him, we're essentially calling on him to save our souls. And that's what it was. They were to look on the bronze serpent, and everybody who looked at it, they didn't have to do anything. But if they were in their tent and they heard, hey, you just got to get up out of your tent and look at the bronze snake on a stick. All they had to do was walk out of their tent and look at it, and they were healed. That was all they had to do. Same thing with Christ. You believe on Christ. You call on his name and you say, okay, that's where my faith is. And that's what you have to do. It was a, a foreshadowing. And so Christ was with Israel all throughout their history, even with Abraham. The angel and God at the terebinth tree, right before the angels went to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, I believe that was a, a Christ. That was Christ in his physical form before he was born in Bethlehem. Now, how that works specifically, God is omnipotent and all-powerful and everything. I have no idea. But if he was small enough to figure out, he probably wouldn't be big enough to worship. Secondly, let's see, where am I? Anyway, rock of salvation. We worship Christ, who is our rock, uh, with not just the physical deliverances he's given us, but the spiritual now, it says, where are we worshiping next? Now, we're worshiping, it says, in his presence. <coughs> now, in the Old Testament times, they had the tabernacle built, and they had the Holy of Holies, and they had a smaller tent inside the big tabernacle, and that was where the presence of God was supposed to reside. Now, only one person could enter there a year, and that was the high priest. So, obviously, that's not what is being referred to here. But... What the Jewish people understood at the time was, is no, we can't go into the Holy Holies because we're separated from, because of our sin. But if they lifted up their hearts to the Lord in a spiritual place, yes, they could. And I say spiritual place, not a physical place, but where their heart is. So if our heart is, like it says in James, willing to draw close to God, then God is going to be willing to draw close to us. And it was the same way in the Old Testament as it is today. It is not your location on this earth that determines if you are present with God, but the position of your heart. So it says, or next in my notes, it says, how do we worship the Lord? Together. And I'll tell you why. Because it says six times, let us, us, 
not me by myself, although I can worship by myself, but we should be getting together and congregating and worshiping together. And there are times where sometimes the church got together just to worship, the early church. Not that they didn't give the word, the word was very prominent, but they got together to worship and to pray. It was very prominent, and it's the same thing we should do today. Hebrews 10.25 says, Forsake not the assembling of yourselves. We're to get together. Now, we're also supposed to sing joyfully. We're supposed to shout joyfully. We're supposed to sing with thanksgiving and with music and psalms or songs. (coughs) I believe... There is a place for many kinds of worship. I believe that there should be happy worship where we're singing, even the Jewish kind of worship where you jump up and down and clapping, although that's not my preference personally. Um, There's time for somber, reflective worship as well. But here it says to sing and shout joyfully. Now, there is a song that came out in the late 90s. I think it was 98 or 99. It was by a band named Delirious. I believe they were a British Christian band. And they have a song called The Happy Song. And it is literally a happy song. And it is only about singing to Jesus. And oh, I'm trying to think out. I can't remember how the lyrics go. It's, I could sing unending songs about how you saved my soul. And it is an upbeat, energetic song. And I could probably listen to it all day. It's that good of a song. Um, everybody convinced Pastor Bill to play it. Because I can't play it. But I bet you he could. But it is, a, it is a happy song. And I believe there should be some sense of giddiness and a thrill to worship. We have the privilege of getting together to worship God. In other countries, they don't have that. And we always take that for it. Always take, uh, we don't take advantage of that. I know that many times, including me in the past, we come in late to church because, well, I don't want to be part of worship. Or, you know, I don't really sing. And I mentioned before, God doesn't care about your voice. He cares about your heart. But there should be a giddiness to it. The butterflies you get in your stomach when you're excited about something, that should be the same thing we have when we worship. I am personally kind of a thrill seeker, not not like super extreme like some people are, but skydiving. I've been skydiving before, and I was, when I did it, I was very excited. My wife had bought it for me for a Christmas present, and I had been dreaming about skydiving since I was in high school. And we're walking down to the airplane, and, you know, I got butterflies in my stomach. And the guy who, and I did tandem, I was attached to somebody. And then I was talking to the camera guy who videotaped it. <coughs> and he's videotaping, so are you nervous? You know, are you, you know, apprehensive? And I said, no, not at all. I'm, I've been looking forward to this for a long time. And he's like, really, you're not scared? I said, no, not at all, Absolutely. So when you look at the picture of me jumping out of the plane, I have a big smile on my face. I'm giddy. I'm excited. And the next picture I think I've posted in the past was me like, like that, going down the sky. I, wasn't, I was not scared in the least, but I was thrilled. And it's that same thrill, that same excitement that we should have about the privilege of worshiping our creator. Uh, I said already shout joyfully with Thanksgiving. We just had Thanksgiving. And you could find a verse in the Bible for every single day of the year about something to give thanks for. And honestly, I think every morning that each of us wakes up, the first thing should be is, thank you, Lord, for another day. And then with music and songs or psalms, worship doesn't mean you need a guitar, doesn't mean you need a harp or a piano. Not that I don't like those things. I like them fine. I actually like it better sometimes. But it doesn't even have to, it says with songs. You don't even have to have a legitimate song to be worshiping the Lord. You can worship the Lord simply by being obedient. And my middle daughter, she is, she beats to her own drum. And that's not a bad thing. I don't, I don't, I don't mean that as a bad thing at all. But this is what she does. We put her in dance class when she was little. And Mariah was in dance class as well. And Mariah would do everything she was told, and she would do the dances. And Hannibal was like, I'm not dancing like that. And she would do her own thing. Well, 
she's the same way musically. Not that she can't do music and she'll learn music and she takes piano right now, but the best thing that she does, and I love that she does this, is she will go around the house and she will sing worship songs that nobody knows but her because she makes them up on the spot. That's all she does. Is she, and, and she'll sing about salvation, her limited knowledge of how everything works and everything, but it's great because that's how she sings. And... I mean, we don't have to dance around like her and sing, but it says in Ephesians 5 to make joy and melody in our hearts to the Lord. And it doesn't have to be a song. It can be the attitude that we're projecting. We can sing random. I mean, I've memorized verses making up my own song to them sometimes. They don't sound good, but it helped me memorize them. But you can do that. And that's, it's where the heart is, just singing to the Lord. <coughs> now, verse 3. For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. Now, there's three names for God in this verse. And we see the first one is Lord, and we mentioned that one already. That is Yahweh. (coughs) And it speaks of God's essence, his being. In the original Hebrew, kind of what we get is his eternality, his his existence, he simply is. When he told Moses, tell them I am sent you, it was essentially, yes, I am, I exist. And then you have God, which is the word El, and this is just where we get the regular term for God. Um, You'll find it in many names in the Old Testament. There is Elijah, there is Elisha. Um, my My middle son, is Elias. It's a form of Elijah. It means God is salvation, or no, Yahweh is salvation. And then there is Elisha, which is my oldest daughter's middle name, which is Elisha, actually. But Elisha is God is salvation. And if you look, every time you see El in the Old Testament connected to a name, it means God. And then there is Elohim. And this one, many say implies the covenant relationship to mankind. And I'll tell you why. <coughs> when you look in Genesis 1 through 3, when it says, in the beginning, God, it doesn't actually say God. It says God's. In the beginning, God's created the heavens and the earth. The reason it was shortened to God is because many theologians thought, well, I don't want the laity or the people who don't really understand Scripture to think, that we're polytheist, because we're not. We're monotheist. We believe in one God. But because God is triune in nature, it says God's, because there's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, every place you see God in those three chapters, it speaks of Elohim. And God is speaking to himself. He's speaking within the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. They say, what shall we do now that man has eaten of the tree of, the tree of knowledge of good and evil? And they are talking about it. And so because of God's covenant relationship with man, he put him in the Garden of Eden. That is what it's referring to. There's a, little, there's a lot more to it than that, but that's to sum it up where it comes from. <coughs> Verse 4, 5, and 6. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. We'll get back to the creation in a second, but let's get to verse 6. In verse 6, there's three different words to express adoration for God. The first is, it says, let us worship. And I'm going to completely destroy how you say this Hebrew word, but it's nishta ka'eva, or something to that effect. And what it means is, let us prostrate ourselves. It's the highest act of adoration you can give God. And when you see in movies where someone totally gets down and falls on their stomach before a ruler or whatever, that is prostration. It is getting as low to the ground as you possibly can. The second one is bow down. That's nikra'ah or something like that. But it means let us crouch or cower down or bending the legs under. If you've ever seen someone 
sit on their knees as far as they can down. That's crouching down on the knees as far as they can. It's almost as if a dog is sitting down and uh, waiting to receive commands from the master. We had a dog growing up named Susie. She was a golden retriever. And she would sit down on the ground and she'd wait for shake or roll over or heal or whatever. And she'd get a treat and stuff like that. But that's kind of what it's talking about. The third one is kneel. Kneel before the Lord our maker. And it's nebraka. And that's let's put our knees to the ground in the posture of one who's supplicating. And that's almost like you're like this and you're ready to ask God for something. Where you're, when you supplicate, you're asking God. But despite those three ways of showing adoration for bowing before God, you can put your body in any position you want if your heart is not right it's not going to matter. It's again, it's not like we said in the presence, it's not the place on earth, it's the position of the heart. It's not the position of your body, it's the condition of your heart. It always goes back to the heart. <coughs> Verse 7. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care, Today, if only you would hear his voice. Now, it says he is our God. It says our God. That means no matter what, he's going to be our God. No matter what we do, if we've already given ourselves to him, if, we're in, if we've sinned and we need to repent, he's still our God. He just wants us to get our condition right, our heart right. It's a constant, our God. Then it says, we are the people of his pasture. Because we're always described as sheep, the people of his pasture means the place he cares for us. What is the pasture of the place where he feeds us and he nourishes us? If you look at the 23rd Psalm or you've ever read um, a shepherd's look at 23rd Psalm, all the things that the shepherd does for his flock, how he cares for them in the pasture. He doesn't just guide them to the best places to feed. He takes care of them. He anoints them with oil. He gets the ticks off of them. He, he makes sure their wool is right. He does all these things. The pasture, again, talks about how he is all-sufficing or always providing for us. And then it says we are under his care, or New King James says we're the sheep of his hand. What that means is <coughs> he is ours. He is personal. It's not just that he owns us, that he's our God to, for, us, for him to command us. It's the personal relationship with him, the sheep of his hand. Because when you touch somebody with the hand, it's, it may not be as intimate as kissing, but it's intimate. If I touch my kid's face, they know that I'm going to touch their face in a gentle manner. But it's an intimate thing. It's not something where no, any touching, I guess, really. But the hand is personal, it's intimate. Um, there's a book I read, that my wife and I read, called A Shepherd's... Oh, what's it called? It's called Shepherding a Child's Heart. I'm sorry, I forgot what it's called. But he talks about disciplining your child. But he talks about doing it with a rod, like it says in Proverbs. Because the rod is to be the object that is used to discipline. So the child equates the rod with his punishment or his discipline because he did something wrong. It's never supposed to be the hand because the hand is intimate and personal. So when you reach your hand out to your child, you want them to always be able to take it because they know you're there to care for them. I'm not saying we're perfect with that, but that's the idea. And I've always liked that idea. (coughs) Now it says, today, if only... You would hear his voice. Thank you very much, sir. I appreciate it. Today, if only you would hear his voice. That's how verse 7 ends. It says, if you would only hear his voice. Now, the question is never, is God speaking? question is always, am I listening for his voice? It says if, because we don't always listen what God says to do. 
do we? God never speaks just to speak. He always speaks so we'll obey, and he always wants us to obey for our own good. And it says we need not harden our heart when God speaks. And <clears throat> I can see this much more clearly and understand it clearly now that I'm a parent because I didn't understand it when I was single because I can't see what I look like when I'm being stubborn necessarily immediately. But I can see it on my children when I give them a command or an order and I don't give them arbitrary commands like, hey, go jump on one foot for a half hour because that's stupid. God doesn't do that either. So when I give them a command or I give them something to do, it's always for their betterment. It's always because I want them to get something out of it. It may be a chore, but even out of that chore comes uh, some discipline because it's something that you have to do later in life. Sometimes you do things you don't want to do. In fact, every day you do things you don't want to do. It's just your duty. It's what you have to do. But seeing my kids go sometimes, you know, like, and they, every single one of them has done it. And having seen it, when I saw it the first time, I was like, oh, man, that's probably what I look like. But that's, that can be the beginning of a hardened heart. And I don't want that. And, you know, it, I won't tell you which one, but sometimes, actually, some of them, a lot of them do it is, you know, when I get frustrated sometimes, I won't say anything, but my hands, I get tense. And sometimes... I'm like going like this sometimes because I'm frustrated. Or um, I'll hold them really tight. Well, some of my kids do that now. And I'm like, oh, I guess I know where they got that from. But it's the, what you can see with that is this battle within the heart. Because God wants one thing and we want another. And it's a battle of the wills. And when we let God win that battle our heart will not become hard. But if we win that battle, we let ourselves win, our heart can become more difficult. It becomes harder. And we want to make sure. And communication is very important. And so when you're praying and you come across a situation where you know God is telling you to do something and you don't want to do it, just like you can't just tell your kids, because I said so, you can, but that doesn't really open that great avenue to communication. And not that, again, not that we've ever done it. Sometimes it's necessary to, to say that and then explain yourself later. There's times where we've had to bring our kids and talk to them for a whole half hour or more so they understand exactly why these things are happening. <coughs> and it's only then that their muscles stop being tense and they go, okay, I understand now. And then you see the look of understanding on their face. And then again, the heart doesn't become hard. Because if you don't explain, and God, God, many times, if he doesn't explain things, he's at least shown us that we can trust the decision he has for us. So it's important not to harden your hearts. Now, verse 8, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the wilderness. <coughs> Do not harden your hearts at Meribah. The rebellion and the day of trial um, that they're talking about in verse 8 is about Meribah. It's in Numbers chapter 20. But it also speaks more generally when it says Masa to Israel's refusal to trust God and enter the promised land. And you can see from the moment they left Egypt, even before they left Egypt, they were always questioning, well, God did this, but is he really going to do the next thing? Well, God did this thing. Is he really going to do the next thing? So there was always a questioning. But it says, don't harden your hearts as you did at Meribah. Now, the appeal to not harden your heart means that there is some aspect of the will and our own will when it comes to the hardness or softness of the heart. See, there's people who say... In, in, I don't know who, which people. There are people who say it's been in commentaries and things where they say, well, God's the one who hardens the heart. Well, yes, God does harden the heart. But God hardens the heart in a very specific way. He lets you have your way. That's how your heart gets hardened. So when it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart in Exodus, it's because God allowed him to have his way. And what that means is we are the cause of our own hardened heart, whether we 
submit to what he wants or we don't. We control some aspect of that. And again, it's interesting <clears throat> that you look at these first seven verses and there's a call to come and worship God. It's not a harsh call. It's come and worship. You've got this benefit to worship the creator of the universe. And then in verse 8, the end of verse 7, verse 8, it says, come worship God, but don't do this. There was a, um, actually, the play we just saw, Wicked. Glinda in the play was always very blonde, for lack of a better term. And <laughs> she would talk in this voice. And she would like talk, oh, to the munchkins and all. And she would talk like that. But then when she'd get upset, she'd be like, no, I'm not going to do that. And she'd, her voice would completely change. And it's kind of like a change of voice here. God, they're saying, come worship the Lord, but don't do this because this is dangerous. There's a change of voice here. Now, Charles Spurgeon suggests that there are several ways that we can harden our hearts against the Lord. And I believe they all have a biblical basis, which is why I'm going to read some of them. Some people harden their hearts by not resolving to feel in regard to spiritual things. And what that means is even, even Christians can quench the spirit or not listen to what the spirit has to say. It says that in 1 Thessalonians 5.19. It says don't quench the spirit. But the spirit may want to move when we go, no, I don't want to move in that direction. So we can quench the spirit and harden our hearts. Some people harden their hearts by delay, which means they're being disobedient. One of the phrases in that book I told you about, Shepherding a Child's Heart, is to teach your child that delayed obedience is disobedience. Now, when you look at the command that Abraham received from God to circumcise himself and his whole household, it says he went and did it that day, everybody in his household. That, he didn't stop. He didn't wait a couple days. He did it that day. So he did not delay. So when God asks us to do something, we need to do it when he says to do it. Some people get their hearts hard by getting into evil company. It says in 1 Corinthians 15.33 that evil company corrupts good morals. Some people harden their heart by silly amusements, is what he says. All intended to kill time and prevent thought upon divine things. If you look at Ephesians 5.16, it says redeem the time because the days are evil. Not that we can't do things on the earth, but if we're constantly filling up our time and it's taking away our time from the Lord, those things can harden our hearts against what God has for us. Verse 9. <clears throat> Where your ancestors tested me, they tried me, though they had seen what I did. Let me actually read that from the start. Do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. I believe that this is the key to this, this psalm. Because every trial we experience is an opportunity for two things. It's either an opportunity to worship, which is what the first half of the psalm is about, or it's an opportunity to rebel against what God intends. That's what the second half is about. Through each trial, whether they lacked food or water, Israel rebelled. No matter what happened, they went, well, God says that, but what about this? Or God fed them manna, and manna wasn't good enough, so they wanted quail, and they got quail, and then it turned bitter in their teeth, or it was too much, and they felt sick. There was always something, and they never worshipped. They rebelled. There were a few exceptions to that, Joshua and Caleb. But the majority rebelled. <clears throat> there are some people who will say, well, they didn't have food or water, so they had good reason to rebel. But it says, they tried me, though they had seen what I did. They knew what God was going to do. Every miracle, he led them through the Red Sea. If God can lead them through the Red Sea, 
then food and water is a very pitiful thing, very easy in comparison. God gives us reasons to trust him. There's always reasons. There's never one scripture that I've read that it would cause me to doubt that God has our best in mind. Now, there's a place called Kadesh Barnea. It was on the border of the promised land, and it was where they were supposed to enter. (coughs) And it's the place where Moses sent out 12 spies, and they were there for 40 days in the wilderness, or sorry, not in the wilderness, in um, the promised land, searching it out. Two of those spies, Joshua and Caleb, came back and said, it's great. We're going to go in there. We'll conquer the land. God's given us the victory. But the 10 other people are like, no, absolutely not. Everybody's a giant. We were like bugs in our own sight. There's no way we're going to conquer it. Those 10 had more impact than Joshua and Caleb, and all of Israel rebelled. And because of that, the Lord wanted to destroy Israel. But Moses interceded for them. And said, no, Lord, this is what you said you're going to do. Far be it from you because we don't want the nations to say that you don't fulfill your word. So God said, oh, this is what I'm going to do. Every day you were there is a year that you're going to walk in the wilderness for judgment. And your generation's going to die off because I don't want that unbelieving generation to walk into my promised land. I want your kids to. God had promised them the victory. The land he commanded to go in and take was already theirs. They were going to win. <coughs> God will never lead us anywhere where his grace cannot provide for us or his power cannot protect us. And I think this story is important also because every Christian comes to this place in their life. They have their own Kadesh Barnea. On the one hand... We know that we have victory in Christ and we need to take it. On the other hand, we're always tempted by the world or the flesh, our flesh, to turn away from that faith in unbelief. I think we all have that propensity. And life will always be difficult. There will always be something that will try us. Now, you guys know that I hike a lot with my kids. Now, we hiked to a place called Piles Peak. If you go up to the top of Cal's Mountain, there's a trailhead for another mountain called Piles Peak. And if you do Cal's Mountain, it's about three miles round trip if you start from the Gulf Crest side. If you add in Piles Peak to that, which is the only way you can get to the trailhead, it adds an additional three miles total. They didn't want to do it, but I didn't care. So, I told them we're going. So we went. And they complained the entire way up. I can't tell you how annoying it was. And that was only five kids. I don't know how God could possibly do it with two million Israelites. But it was was exhausting. But this is what happened. We get to the top, and every single bit of complaining stopped because they were in such awe at the view that we had from the top. We could, it was actually it was evening, and it was actually fairly clear. We could see pretty far. And so their complaining stopped, and they had exhilaration the rest of the time. We stayed up there for, I think, 30 minutes or so, and then we walked back down. But not once on the way back did they complain. They were so exhilarated with what had happened that it didn't matter. The trial that they had just gone through to get to the top, it it was completely out of their mind. And I think (coughs) when you look at verses 3 to 5, and I said I was going to come back to this, when it talks about God's creation and what he's done and the witness that his creation gives to him, it sends you in a state of worship. There are times where you will experience trial and tribulation, and then you'll have to look back and see what God has done. And sometimes Israel had to look back at what God had just done for them. When I even go hiking by myself sometimes, I hiked El Cajon Mountain last month, and it's about 12 miles round trip. 
it is a hard hike. It's probably one of the hardest ones I've done in San Diego. And most of the way up, it's like this. And if it's not like that, it's like going straight back down like that. So it's like there's not a whole lot of flat. And whenever my legs were burning, I'd stop, and then I'd just look around at what God had created. And i go, yeah, that's right. This is why I do this, because I love to see what God's creation is. So it doesn't matter the trial. Look at what God's done, whether it's his creation, even walking out at night. You can't see the stars as well from the city, but looking out and beholding the stars. And even the psalmist in several places says, look at the stars. I can't even number them. Look what you've done. Seeing God's creation, seeing what he's done should put us in a state of worship instead of rebellion. Instead of looking at the trials and circumstances around us, when you're in the midst of difficulty and trial, pick up your head and look around what God has done and is doing. Now, verse 10. For 40 years I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray and they have not known my ways. They do not know my ways. One commentator said, to know God is to trust him. Unbelief is evidence of small or faulty knowledge of God. <coughs> So what are God's ways? Now, we know his ways are his word. Uh, this is his commands for us to follow. But I'm going to read to you Deuteronomy 8, 1 through 6. Verse 1. Every commandment which I command you today, must be, you must be careful to observe, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land of which I swore to your fathers. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So what are God's ways from just those two verses? One of God's ways is he leads us. He led them. God's ways is to lead us. And he leads us through his word, through his commandments. Now, the next thing you see in these verses... <clears throat> is that God wanted to humble them. Now, they were already slaves for 400 years, and that can be pretty humbling, I would think. But God wanted to make sure they were actually humble, because you can be a slave and still be proud in heart. And he wanted to make sure that their heart was at a ready state, that they were humble. The third thing he says in these two verses is, so they would know what was in their heart, because our heart has a tendency to wander. He also wanted them to know that testing and trial has a purpose. <clears throat> now, verse 3 of chapter 8 of Deuteronomy says, So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So the next thing he wants us to know, that is his way, is that man lives by every word of God. And part of worshiping the Lord is trusting in him. Trust is an act of worship. And someone else in scripture used this verse to repel temptation. Do you remember who that was? It was Jesus. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And it says in verse 4 and 5, Your garments did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. You should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord your God chastens you. God will chasten all of us. If he didn't, he wouldn't love us. <coughs> Just as I correct and chasten my children because I love them. But God's chastening has the one specific purpose, and that's to forge Christ in us. Uh, there's a show on, I think it's History Channel, that my sons and I watch a few, have watched a few times. It's called Forged in Fire, and it's about guys making, it's a guy show, guys make knives. But the knives are made in a forge. There's this heated up fire, and they show all the different, it's very interesting, it's very educational, uh, how the knife is made. And the knife is put through this intense heat, and then it's pounded on, and it's beat, and it's forged into a specific shape. 
And that's what trials do. Trials are called fiery trials. They're fiery temptations because they're not easy. But the purpose of that forging is to make Christ in us, to make the image of Christ in us so others can see us. That's God's number one objective. And it says in Hebrews 12, 11, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained, fi- trained by it. Verse 6, <coughs> Therefore you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. The desert wanderings that they went through, they were physical for them, but they were also symbolic because they symbolized the wandering heart that they had against the Lord. Instead of turning to him in an act of worship, they rebelled. They didn't know God's ways because they chose instead to follow their own. It says in verse 11, So I declared on my oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. It gives this warning in Hebrews, and he's talking to Christians. But the danger of us missing rest is not that we're going to miss heaven. Heaven is certainly the ultimate rest for us because this world can be trying. But that's not what it's referring to. It's referring to an absence of worry and stress because we can have that if we trust in God. Because if you trust in God, why are you worrying about anything? How can we say, I trust you, and then worry or whether or not he worry whether or not he's going to keep his word. Well, we can't because that's unbelief. And that's what, it's, it's what this verse is talking about as well. So if we trust in him, then we need not worry. So let me bring it back one more time. And this is the whole point. We're going to continue to go through trials. There's going to be continually things that are difficult for us, that can even upset us, or maybe we don't even understand why God's commanding it. But the point is to not rebel against what God has if we're getting a trial or a command we don't like. But the point is to turn into worship and say, then what would you like me to do, Lord? We're turning to him in worship, and that's the most intimate thing you can do. With that, I'm going to close in prayer. Lord, I do thank you for your word. And Lord, help us never to be rebellious against what you'd have for us. Life is always going to be difficult, Lord. It's never going to be easy. But the trials we go through, Lord, will forge you in us so that we may be that living witness, that living sacrifice for you. Lord, may our lives be a living sacrifice. May our lives worship you in everything that we do. In Jesus' name. Amen.